When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And filling in for Josh this week, I'm Michael Phillips. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. Danny Glover with Lakeith Stanfield in the trailer for the new film, Sorry to Bother You. Part social satire, part sci-fi alternate reality, it's the wildly inventive debut effort from writer-director Boots Riley, and it's been getting a ton of buzz since its Sundance premiere in January. This week on the show, a review of Riley's film, along with film spotting top five worst movie jobs. I'm going to call first violin in the string quartet on the Titanic. I love it. Any version. Night to Remember... (laughs) Titanic with Clifton Webb, uh, the James Cameron, any, any of them. That's a great number one. Plus, listeners weigh in with their picks for the best performance of 2018 so far. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. With me this week, Mr. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Michael, how are you? Good. How's your July going? July is going well, busy. I was doing some traveling, Dallas, San Francisco, then to Grinnell, Iowa. Yes. So really just gallivanting all over the globe. It's been good. What about you? Any travel? Well, you know, I, I, I feel like re- recapturing my values, and so I should go to Grinnell, too. You Even, should. I'm not from there, but I know the values are there. Right? Really strong <laughs> core <laughs> values. We're actually, we're Iowa getting, values. We're getting a, a semi-vacation next week, the family, because uh, June, the middle child, yeah. is off uh, to, a, to a trampoline regional competition. Okay. And that's in Reno, right next to Tahoe. I've never been to Lake Tahoe. Never been. I hear it's lovely. Uh, this time of year. Maybe that's just what I've seen in The Godfather 2. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. Lovely yet menacing. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So anyway, yeah, no, it's been a good month. Well, speaking of lovely and menacing, this week on the show, we're going to talk about the much buzzed about Sorry to Bother You from the Chicago-born Oakland Rays writer, director, rapper, producer, activist, Boots Riley. It's got a great ensemble cast led by Lakeith Stanfield with Tessa Thompson and Army Hammer. More on that film in just a bit. The film spotting top five this week is Worst Movie Jobs. We're not talking about gaffer or best boy or like being the bear wrangler on The Revenant. These are (laughs) jobs that movie characters have. Now, does this mean a job like a writer taking a gig as a caretaker of a remote resort in the dead of winter? Or are we talking about careers like choosing to be a sociopathic taxi driver? We'll find out Good when we get to the top five. We'll also get into our best of the year so far talk with this week's poll question. And podcast listeners will get a few thoughts on the long-awaited new film from director Deborah Granick. Her last movie, The Very Good Winter's Bone with Jennifer Lawrence, came out way back in 2010. The new one is called Leave No Trace, about a father and daughter living off the grid. And spoiler, it's really great. But before we get to all of that, I want to start 
with Ant-Man and the Wasp, Michael. Yes. It's the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the sequel to 2015's Ant-Man starring Paul Rudd. It was last weekend's box office champ. I haven't seen it yet, but the opening paragraph of your review in the Tribune did catch my eye. Okay. It starts Why? Thusly. Why? You'll hear. The unlimited breadsticks approach of the MCU ensures that we remain full of carbs all year as each franchise rolls out another metaphorical olive garden. I love breadsticks as much as the next guy. Me so, too. Unlimited. <laughs> unlimited. That's the whole angle on the Olive so, Garden. So let's hear the angle you have on Ant-Man <laughs> of the Wasp. Does this mean you like the movie? I did. It, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, it's a, it's a tangled web I weave with that metaphor, um, <laughs> which in itself doesn't really scan as a metaphor. But uh, I, I, think, I think after a while, some of us uh, with the new Marvel movie just sort of being thrown onto the Played with the with the previous fourteen, you just start to feel a sameness uh, and and a heaviness that you get with with too many breadsticks. That's mm. the, you know you know what I mean. Yeah. And often with the lesser Marvel movies, it's it's like reviewing the opening of a new Olive Garden. It's very much like the previous Olive or the Olive Garden that currently exists. Ten minutes away from here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Up 94 and the, you know, whatever whatever exit. I think it's the Addison. Oh, you know the exit. The Addison exit and and uh, near the target. And I, and I think other people too, from what I read, uh, actually find the Ant-Man films, particularly this new one, a refreshing kind of palate cleanser. Hmm. It's, it's a little less, you know, it's, it's blatantly and by design minor. The stakes are a little lower. We're yeah. not talking about apocalyptic world ending, you know, no infinity wars being waged. Uh, no, and even in terms of the running time, we're talking about, you know, many minutes fewer than your typical all-star kind of buffet, like, uh, you know, the one that just made a billion plus uh, Avengers Affinity War, you know, and that film was just completely not for me. I didn't think that worked as action. I thought I thought that was unremarkable visually in terms of the action and, you know, whatever. All, people love it or they were so stunned by that harsh, you know, severe spoiler ending that yeah. will be completely redone and, uh, on, you know, a do-over next spring to get our money. Uh, it's not... Ant-Man and the Wasp, it's all in the title. How serious is it truly going to be? But, right. you know, my the answer, funnily enough, I think is just serious enough to make you give a rip about what's actually going on with the character, Scott Lang, played by Paul Rudd, who's actually got very mundane sort of, you know, parenting issues to cope with and, uh, you know, developing relationship uh, that's sort of, you know, cooled now with... The scientist played by Evangeline Lilly, who's the daughter of Michael Douglas, who's – anyway, I don't want to get into it. It's already too much plot, right? But it's – I find Peyton Reed, the director who did Don With Love and many other films, is just, you know, just clearly in, in for a, a lighter, more buoyant kind of experience. And the action's pretty good in this. It actually, it actually keeps – it has a tremendous amount of fun with this – this contraption that uh, Rudd's character has with like changing size and the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. With the, basically, he's got a remote in his hand where he can become ant-sized and fight that way, or he can become you know like enormously huge, like King Kong size. And often, it's not in his control, which leads to a lot of actually fresh variations on this basic idea. It's the clearest, stupidest gimmick the movie's got, and it, it exploits it really well. <laughs> and I just I don't know. I I walked mm-hmm. out of there and I felt like you know this is actually. This is, this is more my kind of Marvel movie. Is it great? No. Is it pretty good? Yes. How long have you been Ant-Man again? Not long. It just sort of happened. I wish I could fight bad guys like you. 
I seem to mess it up almost every time. Maybe you just need someone watching your back. So lighter and more buoyant yep. than breadsticks, does that make it the tiramisu? Uh, Is that too heavy? Uh, you know, funny, at Olive Garden, everything actually weighs the same. So if you put every everything, so even the water's a little, it's heavy water they use. So it is. It's, uh, maybe the breadsticks thing falls apart there. But, uh, <laughs> no, I had seen that description that you used. It might have even been from you, but collectively from a lot of people on Twitter, that idea of it being low stakes and that being refreshing, which is not to be confused with no stakes. Absolutely, you are invested in the characters and what he's trying to save. In this case, it is his family, and that's a different type of stakes, but it is still rewarding. Yeah, and it it sounds just calculated as hell and 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 kind of sentimentally icky and all the rest. It isn't because Rudd knows how to play these scenes. Mm-hmm. Just like Rudd knows how to square off with Randall Park, who's one of the many very good supporting players in here, where you just simply, you know, they, they know well enough, the screenwriters and the director know well enough that if they can derail the plot and just park it for a minute or two, so these actors can just simply kind of mutter some very droll kind of off, off-the-cuff banter. And, and, you know, they get the right actors for it. People are going to receive that in the right spirit if it's done well. Anyway, Paul Rudd's my kind of actor for this kind of yeah. thing, much in the way that Robert Downey Jr. used to be back in the in the days of the first mm. Iron Man, where an actor with a an interesting comic touch lightened the load of a, of a, a film that, when you think back to how good the first Iron Man was, yes, good surprise. Yeah. Downey is no longer that actor. And it's funny to actually think of the prospect of if Rudd had played Iron Man, I wonder if he too would have turned hmm. into kind of a heavier, more self-conscious. Maybe. You know, I don't know. But they're not the same kind of actor, but but the same similar comic instincts, yeah. right? But it really does feel like everybody had the same idea of what kind of Marvel movie and that would be an exception to the rule is. And that's the one strength you can say about the way these Mar- the Marvel universe is conceived. They, the films all have slightly different... So they're in different weight classes. And, you know, I just happen to like this one. Yeah. Well, it's not a comment on the first film, but I think I finally caught up with it about two years after its release on a plane. And I fear (laughs) that despite your recommendation and my general interest in this follow-up, it's going to be the same. (laughs) I'm probably going to catch it on a flight somewhere two years from now. I don't even know if I would say, you know, you know, really, really save this one for the theater because even though it's pretty sharp visually and it's got it's got a good rhythm and a good spirit i don't know if it's you know it's 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 one of these you catch when you can i just sure. but i just think it's better than fully half of the marvel universe movies out there and, and especially again in my view others disagree and especially compared to the kind of the portentous pretentious and I think sort of visually flat universe of Infinity War, which I well, think is still going on. Because, I mean, I mean, I mean it hasn't ended. It's in the name. It's of course name. it is. Yeah. If you have any thoughts on Michael's take on Ant-Man and the Wasp or his thoughts on Infinity War and the MCU, send them to us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I will be happy to forward them on to Michael. With that, <laughs> let's get to Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. I got promoted. I'm a power caller. What do they sell? They're not selling what we sell. No, there's no amount of money that'll make me do that. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm gonna have to get me some new suits. Whatever I wear, no, I'm here to be clear. It is morally emaciated. I can't ride with you. I'm doing something I'm really good at. Cash. I'm gonna make you a proposal. I can see that you want to say no. 
But I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering you. Cash, you are awesome. Adam, seeing a hot Sundance Film Festival title six months after its world premiere in Park City, Utah, which is a typical amount of time, can go one of three ways, I think. It might actually meet or exceed the hype. That's the best case scenario. Or it can be a case of, really, what was the fuss? Or it can be somewhere in between the two. Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You is the latest Sundance hot property to land a choice distribution deal, thanks to Annapurna. And unlike so many other Sundance pictures... This one does not conform to a neat, tidy, slightly bland sort of humanism or a well-made, slightly Squaresville storyline. God knows. Riley's protagonist is Cassius Green, played by Lakeith Stanfield of Atlanta. He plays an Oakland man living in his uncle's wonderfully tricked-out garage with his artist lover, Detroit, played by Tessa Thompson. So right there, I mean, the casting, fantastic. Yep. Cassius takes a job at a telemarketing firm in the movie's first scene, and early on, he takes the advice of a veteran, played by Danny Glover, who urges him to adopt a nice, comforting, dorky, white voice. That'll be his secret to success in this particular racket. Cassius is off and running, but there's friction accompanying his rise to the top of this mysterious company. Namely, his friends and colleagues are waging a strike to unionize and fight for better wages, while the newly promoted Cassius becomes basically a tool of the man. The man, in this case, turns out to be embodied later in the film by a character played by Army Hammer. Sorry to bother you, wigs out, rolling in nervy elements of science fiction, social satire, as you mentioned, stop-motion animation, you name it. I think a lot of people are going to hate where this movie goes, frankly, Tribune subscribers particularly. But (laughs) I don't really care about those people. I only care about you, Adam. Of course. I'll tell you where I am on this feature debut, written and directed by Riley, whose concept album of the same name, Sorry to Bother You, came out a few years ago. And that was in turn inspired by an early version of the screenplay published by Dave Eggers in McSweeney's. But first, I want to know, where are you, Adam, on Cassius Green and his strange saga of drudgery, temptation, ambition, and soul-selling? Is this a Sundance hit that meets or exceeds its reputation or something else? I absolutely get the hype behind this movie, let me put it that way. And I will give a little bit of a hint about how you feel about this movie, because I'm going to quote you. Your review really summed up one line in it, really neatly summed up my thoughts at the end of this movie. And actually, I do want to get to the end of this movie. We'll get into some spoiler talk Mm. maybe at the very end of the review. You wrote, cohesion, neatness, neatness may count in the neatness Olympics, but in movies, it's an overrated commodity. I think that's where I'm at with this movie. It does not all cohere. It is not at all neat. It keeps adding story layers, absurd story layers, in a way that I didn't expect at all going in, and in a way that I can't really find a comparison. Hmm. It's sort of like a Michel Gondry movie at times. He's referenced in the film. There's right, a terrifying right. video we see played at one point. I think the director's name is Michel Dongri or something like that. They it's change, clearly well, a reference. They, they tweak the first name, too. I forget what it is. But it's funny. I've seen that film twice, but that detail does not... Uh, it's there, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... All of the events that unfold in this crazy movie, they don't make logical sense, but like a Gondry movie, they make sense the same way events in a dream do, Mm -hmm. I feel. And it's not just that unrealistic things happen and there's that sci-fi dystopic element that's introduced pretty early on, but the way, for example, there are a bunch of moments, and I don't remember the exact circumstances, but it's the first one I noticed like this where Lakeith Stanfield Cash is, I think, at work. And he turns to say something, 
and all of a sudden we realize that he's talking to his girlfriend, Tessa Thompson, but in the next scene. It has those kind of quick mm-hmm, transitions mm-hmm. sometimes, yeah. and that really does catch you off guard and set you up for the fact that really anything can happen in this universe. That's introduced right away. I love the recurring use of his father's photo. I think we presume that's his father's photo with like a Mustang. He's very proud of it. Right. And when we first see that photo next to his bed, he's just standing there the way a dad might next to a car kind of leaning against it. But throughout the film, that picture, we see the dad posing in different ways. Which is a great old gag from Preston Sturge's movies, uh, you know, back to silent films, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, and, and, and he, he took it, he ran with it, it works. Yeah, and whether or not the character is even supposed to be aware of it is something I'm still thinking about. He seems to <laughs> acknowledge it. Sometimes he hangs it up everywhere and we do see it constantly judging him, changing with his circumstances and his choices. And I've been thinking about it. Is he a reflection of Cash's psyche in those moments? Is that what he's seeing in this weird heightened fantasy world? Or is it just a reflection of ours? Is it a comment by the director, Boots Riley, in the audience where we are judging him the way his father is in that photo because he doesn't seem to be changing his behavior at all based on that judgment? It's definitely a movie, Michael, that could have been a lot tidier. And while on some level that would have been satisfying, I think it really probably would have lost its political charge, and that's such a key part of this film. It's supposed to leave you a little bit riled up. Yeah, this is the most blatantly pro-union picture I've seen in a long time. <laughs> you know, and it, it he takes that stuff very seriously. I mean, I mean, Riley's the son of you know, these progressive leftist activist parents, and you know, he's a, he's a big community organizer himself, and he's. He's he he means what what's going on in this thing, mm-hmm. and and I think one of the real successes of this film, Adam, is the way it treats the central relationship between Detroit, played by Tessa Thompson, as we said, and Lakeith Stanfield's Cassius. Right, so they, you have to have you have to have a stake in the relationship at the beginning. Not that you have to quote like these people or love them. You just mm-hmm. have to believe that uh, that this visual artist, who's kind of a performance artist too, is enough of an activist at heart that when Cash starts selling out and kind of you know like leaves the whole kind of pro pro union effort behind, and it starts zooming up this mysterious ladder. Mm-hmm. You don't really know what's behind this company until you know midpoint of the picture. That it, that it truly would be enough to kind of put the relationship on the rocks. You can play those scenes a completely different way and put them in a different movie like Norma Ray or something and it, they would actually play referenced in the film actually exactly. right on the nose yeah. and 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 that's that's kind of the spirit of the film it's it's funny and antic in a sense but it's also very smart about playing things for real like the first scene in bed with mm-hmm. the two characters in the garage is handled in in a, this really sharp, natural, intimate way. Great conversational tone, and and w- before you know it, within five minutes, you're just okay. I'm I'm in. I want to know more about these people. And then by that by that point, Bruce Riley's already kind of tipped his head that we're going to throw you so much unpredictable stuff about what's where we're going to send this guy through. You know, it's wild and. When I talked to Boots Riley, he said at Sundance Labs when they developed the screenplay, he had a much more hands-off, uh, easygoing approach to the main character, Cassius. He was basically, he described him as a pinball, just sort of getting knocked around by the plot. And he was much more sympathetic and didn't really ever take control of any of the events in, in the story. 
But then, after kind of rethinking it, and then eventually in the shooting script, he thought, you know, this guy doesn't really have any stake in his own, in the running of his own life, even though he's making mistakes. Mm -hmm. So he rethought it and said, okay, you know what, I'm going to risk the audience sympathy and just, you know, say, okay, willfully, uh, no, I'm going to sell out. I like this idea of actually actually making some money, success, and, you know, damn the cost of it. And that's really what the film is about, is like a guy learning just before it's too late that there is a cost to this sort of thing yeah. and, and selling out. And, you know, we've, the movies have dealt with sellouts and the cost of and sort of like the moral reckoning that comes, you know, forever. And, of course, the most famous would be C.C. Baxter, right? Or one of the most famous, mm-hmm. Jack Lemmon's character the in apartment. The Apartment, right, where he just sort of eats it and eats it and eats it and then realizes, you know, he does not like the taste anymore, right? And that's kind of what happens here. Yeah. But sorry to bother you up to about, you know, every other thing. And we cannot, you know, you'd be an idiot to ignore or play down the racial aspect of this thing because it's really just about racial identity and, yeah. you know, the, the, the this omnipresent white au fait world where, you know, the, the key to success is to just give up yourself. And this idea of adopting the white voice is sort of a joke and yet it's dead serious mm-hmm. and it affects, you know, just about every character in the film one way or the other. I don't know. This film's got about 15,000 ideas in it. It does. You know, twelve <laughs> to 1,500 of them don't work. But that's still a great percentage. And yeah. I, there was so much to see twice. I was happy to see it a second time. I don't know. I think I think that leap it takes at the end, mm-hmm. I don't want to give it all away, but the leap it takes not at yet. the end is not, you know, is not going to be for everybody. And it's probably, it may have taken a different sort of director, even though I think Riley did a generally very good job in his first feature here. It would have taken a... a, a a different visual sensibility to really sell it to a mainstream crowd. Yeah. Know? But who's who's thinking about a mainstream crowd with this movie? Is he? I don't no, think so. No. no, probably not. And along those lines, you said you've seen it twice. I'm curious how your crowd reacted. Not that that really indicates much with a movie, but it is tied up with how complex this movie actually is for me. I only saw it once. I just saw it actually last night. Hmm. And immediately you recognize how angry a movie it is and also how funny a movie it is. And mm. it's broad in both respects. Like, it's not just kind of frustrated with how things are or could be or trying to be just a little bit cheeky. It's very funny. It's very jokey at mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. And we really do get that anger. It seems like the perfect time for audiences to watch that combination of furor and humor <laughs> play out on screen. Yeah. I think about the dumpster fire that is Twitter every day. It's just that. It's rage mixed with silliness and sarcasm. Right. But I was surprised watching it with my audience how little my crowd was laughing at mm. it. The injustice and dread at the core of the movie, I think, is so overwhelming at times in the way most of us feel overwhelmed every day by so much of what's going on in the world that maybe it's hard to flip that switch and laugh at a movie like this when it's trying to be funny. Or is it something about the way the movie's construction, the offness of some of the beats? Or was it just that I had a very serious, very boring crowd was it a white this movie? Was it a white crowd? It did seem predominantly white. Yeah. I mean, I think one audience I saw the film with was was 50% white, 50%, you know, either African-American or Latino. But I think that does change yeah. things. Or it can. It doesn't, necess- doesn't guarantee mm-hmm. changing it. But I think the idea of getting, giving yourself relaxing into the kind of the bizarre sense of humor of it mm-hmm. is, is something that you either do or you don't. And you, the movie doesn't really cue you to the tone because it, it's, no. it's, very, it's very shrewd about juggling the tones, I think. And I don't know. Like the acting is in sort of one very relaxed conversational key. But, you know, that, that kind of gives 
a nice contrast to this this ever escalating series of bizarre events. Yeah. And so the, the, by the end, the world is kind of exploded. You yeah. Know? One yeah. of my favorite touches comedically, and it speaks to this idea of the anger at the core of this film, the satire, the critical point it's making about the kind of sadomasochistic dichotomy that exists in our society in the entertainment that we consume. I think about a movie like the Lego movie, mm-hmm. where the TV show and the Lego movie, we got the kids PG version of satire there of mindless tv it was honey where are my pants You're right, right? Right, right and then it goes up in a movie like idiocracy we get the adolescent kind of pg-13 satire of mindless tv do you remember that michael yeah, yeah, i had to look yeah, up today right. ow my balls yeah. is the tv show there and you know that's kind of that jackass sort of approach to tv here we get the full-on adult r-rated version which is I got the shit kicked out of me. I know. That's the name of the show. I thought that was hilarious. I laughed every time it was referenced. You know, and it's it's the laugh is meant to curdle the last time you see it because the scene is really genuinely kind of like it is. icky and painful. You yes. Know? And I don't want to give it all away. But it, it yeah, it's a, it's a very – it's a really – I don't want to say it's a mean satire because I think mean means you're punching down. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I think this this is a film culturally that's punching up. You know, it's it's not every target deserves it. Yep. And and it and it's using this crazy exaggeration and hyperbole to kind of make its points. And that won't be for everybody because is it you know anybody who needs like the anchor of realism or plausibility or any of that it's, you're just in the wrong multiplex. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But for I, sure. I you know is it is it going to be a film like Get Out Jordan Peele's Get Out that is going to I think find its that did clearly find its way into the mainstream of the culture and sort of satisfy a lot of people's genre itch and just sort of deliver on a thriller level, right? This is not that film. No, it's not. No, and it it gets riskier as it goes. And I think this one of the keys to the commercial success of Get Out is that as it went, it, it, it I wouldn't say it got more conventional, but it got more conventionally gratifying in terms of like, okay, now he's fighting back. Yes. Now he's killing. Now, now we're, now I'm in this and he's got to get out of this house, you know, and it, this is different. This is different. And it's, I think the Michelle Gondry comparison is very good because that sort of orients you a Spike Jones's worlds, or even if you go back to, you know, some of the stuff that was happening with Melvin Van Peebles mm-hmm. work in the seventies, you know, watermelon man and, uh, sweet, sweet back, and all that. You know, Putney Swope, Robert, Robert Downey Sr.'s film, where you know that's a very broad and kind of sort of clumsy in that case satire on the white mainstream culture and you know black infiltration thereof and all that. Yeah, you know, there's elements of all this stuff, and it's, a lot of these themes have been floating around. What I know now more of Boots Riley's music with the coup. Uh, which is, you know, I love, and I love actually the concept album that that inspired the movie. Hmm. You know, and it's, you know, a lot, a lot of it's, a lot of it's, you know, taking things in a different direction, but it all works, and it's all part of this one artist's life and concerns. And I think this movie is just a great calling card. He is a really good director of his own stuff too. Hmm. I think, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, this isn't like just okay direction. This is really fluid, sharp purposeful direction. And, yeah. the, and the rhythm of the film is very unpredictable, and I love that. And you get that with music. Uh, somebody comes out of music, they know rhythm, and then, they can, then that always helps them in the editing room. Yeah, I can see that, though it's not fluid at all. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't describe it that way, because there are sometimes those harsh cuts between scenes. kind of herky-jerky. Exactly. Yeah. But sometimes there are those more melodic transitions. I think he's using the, the whole scope of that kind of sound as we apply it here to the editing. And you brought this up earlier, and tying it now back to get out a little bit, I do think that a real strength of this movie is the agency he gives that 
that character and how messy he makes that character. Not that I would have wanted Jordan Peele to do anything different necessarily with Get Out, but that character, Chris, were on his side the entire from time. The, from the right? beginning, right. We're rooting for him from the very beginning. The only knock we may have against Chris is, just like his friend, we don't know why he's still there after maybe about 15 minutes, but right. we also understand why he's still there. Right, right, right. Here, we're positive that Cassius is making a lot of very bad choices. And I think we do, in fact, know, or at least I did catch on to where this was all ultimately kind of going with Mm -hmm. the whole power caller thing. We see it before he even catches on to it because he's so blinded by the flashiness of the fact that he's making some money, finally, a lot of money. But at the same time, he's making those bad decisions and we are judging him for it. We understand what's driving those decisions. We understand the necessity that's driving those bad decisions. And I think that's, that's really crucial to this movie. Like I said, being as complex as it is. He doesn't write off anytime there's a dialectic going on between a fight, an argument of a clash of ideas between two characters. He, mm-hmm. he, he's very, he's very concerned. I, th- I think he's really good at giving both sides a good argument, at least for the moment. Yeah. And that does help you through this guy's, you know, the main character's kind of series of unfortunate decisions. But but also the way Lakeith Stanfield plays him, it's such a kind of easygoing, realistic, plausible take on the guy that yeah. you just you just sort of roll with it. Yeah, I wanted to it. talk about the performances a little bit because I think about Army Hammer here as this best work he's ever up done. CEO. Best, best, work, best work he's <laughs> ever done. And I remember what you said here on the show about his performance in Call Me By Your Name. Generally a fan of that movie, not so much of that performance. I right. think you talked a little bit about the the pridefulness of the performance and maybe it didn't quite work. Well, it's all on display here as this CEO. And I was imagining that you would think it was very good. And there's something about the casting where he is just sort of the ultimate privileged white man, you know, a white man of, of just almost terrifying ingrained privilege, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the fact that Army Hammer is just enough of a an actor, I think, to, to know how to not back away from that, right. you know, and to play into every kind of thing he's got in terms of physical equipment and just that air he's got of, yes. of, 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 you know, uh, entitlement of hammer millions, you know, I mean, he, that, that guy comes from a lot of money and yeah. he knows what those people are like. And I think he's, uh, thank God, he's just enough of an actor to kind of know how to play both sides of it. So, and so when he does show up and it's a, a strategic kind of two thirds point, uh, you think, yeah, he's ready for it. And it was great casting. Yeah. And Tessa Thompson, I think we've already said she's a treasure at this point. Anytime she shows up on screen, Stanfield is such an interesting beast, right? As an actor, I was trying to think about what makes him unique. And there is a physicality to him in terms of the way he uses his expression. It's not ever about being overly verbal with him. And that means that you're never getting the sense that he's thinking about what he's going to say next. He's an actor who always seems to be so in a scene and listening and reacting genuinely to what he's getting. It's acting 101 in some ways, but there's something natural about it with him. It's a unique energy, and that's the only way I can really describe it. It's true, and I, I'd say that's that's actually true of the film itself, too. The film has a unique energy, mm-hmm. because, and because it kind of requires it, just because the story itself is not following any kind of predictable path and it, and it gets lost a bit and it does you know there are th- there are issues with the last 20 minutes that that I I still haven't quite figured out if it is it a, is it truly a matter of maybe a slightly different or more hmm. You know, more more of a kind of a visually inventive director might have been able to pull it off. Maybe it was a matter of another f- five hundred thousand in terms of <laughs> production budget, mm-hmm. and to to kind of visually realize a certain key 
species that enters the film late. Yeah. I don't want to give it all away, you know. Well, but, yeah. yeah but, uh, we can get into it a little bit here little as bit, we but, go. But it's, you know, it, that's the moment where some people, many people, are going to just simply say, you've lost me and, you know, we've wigged out too far and it's cloud cuckoo land now. And I I wasn't really in or out. I was just more like, you know, I was with the movie enough just in terms of like, oh, yeah, let's see how, they, oh, I hope they pull this off. You know, it's such a, it's such a wild leap into the next level of sort of, mm-hmm. you know, like science fiction this film gets into, which is, which is funny because so much of the film is absolutely street level, you know, Oakland realism. It's just like shooting on the streets of Oakland, you know, uh, streets and apartments. And, uh, you know, it has one foot very much in the real world and the other foot in, you know, it's the, the other foot can't land anywhere mm-hmm. because that's kind of what's happening to the character that can't really get his footing right because he doesn't really know who he is you're going upstairs my compadre okay bravo you don't have to sell out i'm not selling out we will have a transformative experience those are our non-spoiler thoughts on Boots Riley. Sorry to bother you if you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net now If you haven't seen this film, you should stop listening. You should fast forward a little bit. Check the time code if you want on your iPhone or your computer, wherever, however you're listening. Jump ahead a little bit here because I do want to talk about the end of this film. And we don't even necessarily have to get into kind of the the kookiness of it, the insanity of it, which I think you've already articulated very well. I want to talk about really more what it says about the film and how it changes the film, upends it, or actually seems totally appropriate to the film. And I'm going to go to Josh. He's not here, but we'll work him in to the podcast a little bit. In his review, very glowing review on his website, LarsonOnFilm.com, he did write this. Detroit, with her job as a sign spinner that doubles as protest art, perhaps offers a truer way of living, but at the same time, she's something of a fantasy figure. If Sorry to Bother You loses some verve, it's in an ending that attempts to offer a bit of comfort, a sense of closure. There's no need for a movie this challenging, formally and intellectually, to tie things up for its audience. Better to stay intrusive and angry. There's that word again. So I'm curious for your thoughts on that, because, again, everyone listening to this, if you have not seen the ending and if you don't know where this movie goes, definitely do not listen to this. But there's this introduction of this idea of the company turning men into horses or Equi- half men, yes. half horses, Equi- 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 sapiens, yeah, so right. that they can be more efficient, stronger more capable better, better workers and they probably wouldn't unionize. Right. And there is a moment where Cassius becomes freaked out thinking that he just snorted the line of coke that actually is the thing that turns these people into horses. He's assured that it isn't. But now at the end of the film, in a moment where it seems like there's actually some closure and things are really great, he turns and we realize that he himself is, in fact, transforming into a horse. But then right. there's another tacked-on scene there where we see him as a horse man, as an equisapien, right. leading a revolt and attacking Steve Lift, attacking Army Hammer's character. So what was your take on Josh's take and how that all comes together? I think hmm, uh, this makes you sound like a studio executive kind of giving notes. But I, I think you would, in order to, in order to kind of stick it to the audience— and realize, oh my God, our protagonist is screwed. You know, like you know, yeah. it, it's transforming into a beast, right? And then try to get a kind of a rouser 
coda after that is very hard because mm-hmm. uh, you're really kind of kind of yoinking the audience two ways <laughs> yes. fast, right? Yep. And I think it, if, you know that maybe maybe a different director could have found a way into that. It's it's it reminds me of what Jordan Peele had originally thought of for the ending of Get Out. We know we know this, mm-hmm. right? right? Yes. You know, where where instead yeah. of instead of basically no one get, comes to save the day. No, well, or the, it ends or, the way we all thought it was going to end. The cops, police show up, yes. they put him in jail. Right. White cop shows yep. up. You know the guy, the guy looks. You know you know. Chris looks guilty as hell. That's the ending. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, that was Jordan Peele's first instinct. You know, this is a truer sociological point I must make as a filmmaker. Right. And then, you know, the Blumhouse people said, do you want to make money on this movie or don't you? And, and you know, he kind of bitterly at first, but they did find a way, I mm-hmm. think, to actually, you know, not make that movie soft entirely or, or sell right. out in the wrong way. Uh, this is different. I think Sorry to Bother You is different. It has the courage of its convictions, and it's going to limit its commercial appeal. It just is. Uh, and to Josh's point, um, yeah, I think I think there is an idealized quality to Detroit. I think Tessa Thompson is so interesting and honest and and really kind of ruthlessly untheatrical as an actress. You know, she just you just simply believe everything. That that character yeah. is not just quote represents because that is the idealized right. part, and that's of even her playing a performance artist. I know, I know. <laughs> she's but, inherently theatrical, and she's not. Yeah, she doesn't go for any of the obvious no. laughs, and and in a way, you might even say that she's playing against the the tenor of some of the material she has to do. But I, I don't know. I just find that she and Lakeith Stanfield were just this destiny. They they kind of play these parts together, and they're 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 the grounding you need in this in this world. And I, you know, I think Josh is. Probably right about about you know it's a limitation. I don't you know for for various reasons that last fifteen twenty minutes is it feels unsettled yes. to me. The whole movie is unsettled, but it's it's kind of wonderfully unsettled. I mm-hmm. think. And and that you know I'm not sure it was quite there, but you know look, I haven't seen anything that tried this much all year, and I've seen very few films that were as kind of gratifyingly truly inventive. So yes. you know I. I as as I say sometimes on the show, I, I have reservations about my own reservations. Sure. Well, I find it ironic that Josh used the words there, better to stay intrusive and angry when the end of the film is literally an angry intrusion as they all break into so the guy's saying, home. you're saying Josh is an idiot. No, I'm not actually because I get what he's saying or at least I get what I think he's saying because he didn't go into spoiler territory and we're reading between the lines here. But I think what he's saying is that ending on a note where after – a terrifying ending, which I agree with you. If it ended there, it probably would have been a little more effective, but still yeah, much, the, the Twilight much, Zone kind of yeah. yoink that happens there at the end, yeah. that wouldn't have been satisfying at all either. But we do have a case where we go from that, a bad ending, a unhappy ending, right. if you will, our right. characters being punished, to one where the primary villain is getting his comeuppance. So I get that that softens things a little bit and that it makes it a little bit more of that happy ending. But even if it is a little bit happier, here's where I'll disagree with Josh slightly, and maybe we're just getting into some semantics here. But yes, he's fighting and he's punishing that CEO character, but he's a horse. <laughs> he's a, a horseman. Horse and man. as far as we know, there's no cure for it. And from here on out, life is going to be a terrible struggle. It already was a struggle. But now he's half man, half horse. It all left me feeling very uneasy. I know, but at least he's not a telemarketer anymore. Right. Right? I mean, this is the, I think this is the ultimate moral. <laughs> joke. <laughs> the real is, joke. I think it is. I think one of, the, well, one of the little hiccups here is that Boots Riley really wants you 
to not know if the CEO character, played by Army Hammer, is getting away or not at the okay. end. I mean, he yeah. seems to be, you know, yeah, about to know, be attacked, about and... to be attacked. But you know, this is a this is a question of whether or not, you know, the cheapest part of the average movie gore doesn't. Do we just want to see a nice, good, gory, R-rated slaughter at that at that moment? Yeah, probably, and that, that probably would have. <laughs> You know, put a little button on things mm-hmm. better than this sort of interesting, ambiguous, yeah. you know, kind of blur of a of a of a kind of a switcheroo ending. I don't know. Yeah, it, it didn't quite work that ending out. But you know what? People have been talking about how hard it is to end a damn movie for you know a century or more at yeah. this point. So I'm not. You know, it's 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 a funny thing that it has almost the same. The movie had uh, another very good movie on similar themes of. Race and ambition and class and all of it uh, coming up uh, next week. Blind spotting, which is also set and shot in Oakland. Uh, you know, very different film, but it does that one has a little bit of trouble in the last twenty minutes too. Hmm. They're getting a, in that case a little, uh, a little more contrived and a little more obvious. But uh, but most of that movie's terrific too. So yeah, um, uh, those two films, something's going on with Oakland, Rand. I, I, I guess so. I, there is, there yeah. is, and that you throw in Black Panther, mm-hmm. and which is like a seriously committed. To and speaking of Oakland's, you know, real world mm-hmm. issues, you know, there's, there's that, <laughs> that's turned out to be a very fertile source material. For sure. Well, those are our spoiler thoughts, at least on the ending of Sorry to Bother You. And we look forward to hearing from all of you about the ending, about your thoughts in general on the movie. Again, feedback at filmspotting.net. Up next, we are going to reveal the results of the film spotting poll, what listeners say is the best performance of 2018 so far. Mm. And then Michael Phillips will judge all of you. Yes. Stay with us. Young Krills, this for out. I'm single, more single fathers. I just trying to make it, taking pay cuts, never Lay up, putting food up on the table. All them hookers scraping chains, selling hookers to the food. Trapping, bunking, I ain't judging, man. Just know that shit ain't good. Ain't them strippers out your bus and put them ballers in the club. Be in college or your pockets, just no dollars ain't enough. For your love and your heart, cameras on, play your part. Never lose who you are. Know yourself from the start. I- Know what it's like to be So far behind you gotta fight to see Over the shoulders of your collectors Granted praying may God protect us In the heat of the night I pray God can help us In the dark as an alley you can see the devil I swear you gotta keep them off and stay clear Like yeah Man don't let them take your soul I said don't let them take your soul Yeah I said don't let them take your soul A lot of people like call me quiet or shy or whatever, but I'm not quiet. Most quiet, Kayla Day. I don't talk a lot at school, but if people talk to me and stuff, they'd find out that I'm like really funny and cool and talkative. By the way, I like your shirt a lot. It's like so cool. What? part of the trailer there for Eighth Grade, the writing-directing debut of stand-up comic Bo Burnham. Like Sorry to Bother You, Eighth Grade got a lot of attention at this year's Sundance Film Festival. It goes into limited release this weekend, then expands wider, including here in Chicago next weekend. A lot has been made already about how Burnham, a male stand-up, has made such a sensitive portrait of teen girl angst. That's something we discuss, as well as a lot more in my conversation with him. I'm very excited to share that interview next week here on Film Spotting. Josh will return from his European vacation. I'm hoping he'll see eighth grade and we'll get his thoughts on the movie as well. Our plans for the rest of the show are still kind of up in the air. There's a notion out there to maybe do our top five teen girl protagonists. Hmm. Or following up an idea we had 
a month or two ago, we talked about Tully and the two real parenting moments. Hmm. How about the two real adolescent moments <laughs> that you see on screen? Yeah. Because there are quite a few of those in the movie Eighth Grade. If you have any thoughts about either of those topics or other top five ideas, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net or you can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. As Regular listeners know, our Chicago-based listeners know, we like to give away movie passes, Michael, when we have them, sometimes to run-of-engagement movies, sometimes to advance screenings before, of course, the movie has come out. Right now, we've got some Admit 2 passes to a Monday, July 16th screening of The Equalizer 2, starring Denzel Washington reteaming with Antoine Fuqua. And by the time many of you hear this, we might have many more movies up there and free passes to give away. Again, filmspotting.net and just click on events. I mentioned that Josh was in Europe. He has made it, I think, from Oslo, Norway to Amsterdam with the family. I'm sure he'll regale us with tales next week here on the show. I know he did get in a meetup in Oslo, so fantastic that he was able to Mm. have a drink or two with some film spotting listeners. When I was out in San Francisco, I had a chance to meet up with Taylor, Wren, Stephen, Christopher, and Sean. I think that's all of them. Wow. Yeah. And we had a fantastic time. Sunday morning, World Cup was going on. The Pride Parade was going on. I still found plenty of time to enjoy the festivities there and have some great meals while I was in San Francisco. But we had a chance to hang out for a couple hours, have some great food, have a few drinks, and talk about movies. Just a great group of guys. I always love hanging out with film spotting listeners. That's fantastic. You know, the few times I've done it, uh, you know, we did a meetup at Sundance uh, mm-hmm. was, was along with Josh that year. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was, it's just a great conversation. And I would love, have you ever done Reno, Nevada? Have not. Yeah, I'm going out there. I'm, I'm sure we have a few listeners I'm, out there. I'm going out there in October, man. <laughs> Michael will meet you at the craps table. <laughs> well, let's 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 stay away from the casinos. But seriously, we should let's revisit this idea. I like it. Okay, yeah. And if anyone out there is going to be in that area, Reno, shoot us a note. Okay, just might meet up with you. A couple of weeks back, Josh and the AV Club's Katie Reif reviewed Damsel with Mia Vasakowska and Robert Pattinson. Josh also convinced Katie to take part in Masquerade Theater. I haven't had a chance to listen to any of the show yet because I haven't seen Damsel. So until I see that movie, you're not too big on it. I recall Josh wasn't. Either. Oof. A little bit mixed, Michael? No, not mixed. Okay. Yeah. All out negative on the Zellner Brothers film. Yeah. Massacre Theater, though, Katie played in our reindeer games. And of <laughs> course, this is our contest where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t shirt. If you haven't heard that massacre yet, here's a taste of what you missed. What the hell are you doing in my office? Well, I, 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 I came to talk about my job. The only job you're going to get in here is pushing up daisies from a pine box. Now get out. If you know what film Josh and Katie massacred and looking at the entry so far, not many of you do. It was Teen Wolf. (laughs) It it? was not Teen Wolf. (laughs) We've already done it. (laughs) Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, July 16th. Actually, Michael Teen Wolf is in the Pantheon. (laughs) (laughs) Of of great teen angst movies, just like eighth grade. Yep. Yes, beautiful. Okay, so fine, then say what you want to say then. Peter. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine. Release me. Just say it. Just say it. Don't you swear at me, you Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? 
That's Tony Collette with Alex Wolf. In Hereditary, Collette's much-praised performance was one of the options we gave you a couple weeks back when we asked you to name the best performance of 2018 so far. Your options here, in addition to Tony Collette, were Emily Blunt in A Quiet Place, Hugh Grant in Paddington 2, Ethan Hawke in First Reformed, Brady Jandro in The Writer, Michael B. Jordan in a supporting role in Black Panther, Charlize Theron in Tully, or... You could take the field. You could go with other. Now, Michael, before you judge our listeners for how the voting came out, judge us. How did we do as far as laying out the best candidates so Mm. far? That's a, that's an that's an atypically good selection. Uh, did, who helped you? <laughs> yeah, Sam, of course. Sam, Sam, yeah. did, Sam it wasn't me, Sam, or Josh. Sam did it. Uh, if anything, I you know the some, one thing that bolsters Hugh Grant is how how good he is in this uh, new Amazon Prime series, which uh, I have not watched. A yet. Very English but he's, scandal. Very he's good. He's very good in that. Very, he's very good. Okay, well, give us the results here, Michael. Starting at the bottom. The bottom at four percent. One of my favorite performances in one of the best films of the year. Yeah. I think Brady Jandro. It was my the, vote in the Rider. Yeah, terrific. At 5%, other. Now, that included Joaquin Phoenix in You Were Never Really Here. That was the most popular response. Natalie Portman in Annihilation, also getting a few mentions. At 7%, Charlize Theron in Tully. 9%, Hugh Grant in Paddington 2. 10%, Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther, supporting role that was almost a co-lead and terrific work, actually. Mm -hmm. And 12%, Emily Blunt in the very popular A Quiet Place, a film I still have reservations about. 24%. At number two, that's the number two slot. Twenty-four percent, Ethan Hawke, in Paul Schrader's First Reformed, and the number one performance of the first half of 2018. Twenty-nine percent voted Tony Collette in Hereditary. <laughs> right, <laughs> almost a third of the vote. But as you read them there, Michael, very packed together for the most part. Take a jump up there with Ethan Hawke in second place and Tony Collette. But otherwise, maybe we actually did okay coming up with these options. And sadly, I still haven't seen. Hereditary, the one here that I have not caught up with. And of course, I will see it before we share our best films of 2018 coming up here in a few weeks. I will tell you one thing about Hereditary. Yes. Many people detest the ending so much, and they all subscribe to the Tribune, all these people. (laughs) You heard from all of them. Heard from all of them. And yet, here's an interesting thing. Another film that I I liked even better than Hereditary, The Witch, Robert Eggers' The Witch, Mm -hmm. had a similarly controversial ending that that, that got, you know, like almost F-level Cinema score exit polls, right? But every, everybody who complains to me and writes a letter that isn't f- completely full of bile, right? I respond and I say, "Yeah, you didn't like this. I bet you like the witch better." And they all do. Really? Yes. So I've turned a lot of people onto the witch because fascinating. I've just sort of like done this mind game with them. And, <laughs> you have, you know, you know tricked them into thinking I'm their friend, and you know. Yeah. But but truly, they uh, they somehow that controversial ending, you know, took them in a place they liked. And Hereditary, I think, is not as successful in sort of resolving its own particular universe. Okay. Anyway, that's my feeling. Well, I can't wait to see it even as I'm actually terrified to see it. I'm not going to tell you how it ends. Let me tell you how it ends. I'm going to tell you how it ends. (laughs) Michael Nabonzi, a listener, wrote in, Cullet deserves credit for not only exceeding the buzz she's earned for her enormous role in Hereditary, but for giving us a character with contradictions, manifesting guilt, love, fear, surrender, and endurance into a believable maternal role. If Laura Dern could be included for her marvelous work in The Tale, which I still need to see on HBO, she'd be my pick. But for now, Colette has this in the bag. Okay, this is from Darwin Manabat in Toronto. That's a name. It is. Isn't that a Fantastic. That's a great name. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm going to change my name. 
Christian to Darwin Monabot in Toronto. While Tony Collette screams, jumps, and crawls into everyone's top spot, Ethan Hawke's turn as the Reverend Ernst Toller burrowed his way into my psyche as the best performance of the year thus far. Hawke goes deep to a place I haven't seen him go before. It's an internalized performance, but also expressive. Paul Schrader's film is about humanity at its most vulnerable, about faith being tested against our very nature, and Hawke firmly embodies this. I, it, it, He's it so is, good. It is the best, and I don't say that typically of Ethan Hawke. I've always found him slightly slightly self-conscious and a little well, bit... Well, how dare you? And I, I just, I feel like I see the, the wheels turning and this this was the best work he's ever done. Yeah, I don't think I disagree even as I have come to very much appreciate him as a presence on screen, but I did early on have that same reaction as mm. you that that you do. You do see the wheels at work a little bit. It's, work, turning, it's just but, working a little harder than he needs to, sure. which is, an, you know... But I think as he's matured as an actor, we've seen that fade away a little bit right. and it certainly fades away and, and so should we in this all. movie <laughs> you know so should we I all mean, give up our self-consciousness I agree <laughs> still working on it every day <laughs> Michael same, same. Willie Evans says I considered this question for a long time do I really think that Hugh Grant has given the best performance of the year or am I being blinded by the brilliance of Paddington 2 <laughs> ultimately I did the right thing and pushed the nice core train is that a thing can we make nice score a thing? <laughs> Further down the tracks, and I'm glad to see so many film spotting listeners have done the same. I love Hugh Grant. I was shocked, actually, at how good he was in Paddington 2, because I never saw him as a guy who could truly be a character like right, that. Right, right. And he is. He, he's perfect. He's a funny mixture of, of very subtle and very broad and and it, Kevin Klein is maybe one of the nearest American equivalents, I think. And it's it's just it's it's also just an indicator of how good every element of Paddington Two and the first Paddington film are too. If you, mm-hmm. I think time's going to be very good to both of those films. Yeah, Michael, you've got the next one here. John Kissel. John Kissel says Joaquin Phoenix arguably delivers the year's best performance whenever he's in a movie, and that's never been more true than in Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Bulked up to play a deadened hired gun who rescues sex crime victims, Phoenix is by turns tender and brutal, depending on if he's wielding his signature ball-peen hammer or removing his elderly mother's glasses as she falls asleep. His mastery of the role means he's always fluctuating on that continuum, showing some shred of anguish when he's committing violence or discomfort when he's being kind. Phoenix is barely verbal for much of You Were Never Really Here, but he might be saying more than any performance this year. Very well put. Very well put, and he's not wrong. Joaquin Phoenix is amazing in that film. He's amazing all the time, and he was, for the record, the last option that we were weighing. It came down to Theron in Tully or Phoenix, and you were never really Mm -hmm. here, so I'm not surprised that so many people voted for him in the other category. I just saw the trailer before, sorry to bother you, for the sisters, brothers, Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley in a Western. I have not seen that trailer. So I just saw it, and this isn't even so much about the movie itself, but I'm willing, just based on the trailer, to give all the next 10 years of Oscars to Joaquin (laughs) Phoenix. He's just that good. And it's such a turn. And, of course, we know he can do comedy. I think he's hilarious, though not broadly so, in Inherent Vice. And he is an actor who can play any type of character. And yet, watching him be as verbal as he is, in contrast to a role like that one, and you were never really here, seeing him in the trailer for that movie, which seems to have its own elements of violence, but also to be pretty comedic. I can't wait to see it. I like the idea of those two guys together. Absolutely. I don't think they've worked together, have they? Not that I can think yeah, of. Yeah, it's yeah. Good. yeah. No, good. I'm excited to see it. Finally, we hear from Sam Ivaturi, who says Brady Jandro shouldn't be in last place. 
more people need to see the writer. Yes. He speaks for me. He speaks for you. He's great. He's so good. I don't know if I'd, you know, would I have singled that performance out as being the best of the first half of this year. It's, you know, one of the strengths of that film and that performance is that it's 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 this close mm-hmm. to being completely invisible, yes. non-acting, which yeah. is was what you want. I mean, the, even the director discovered this guy working on a documentary on these rodeo kind of communities in South Dakota, and it's a, it's, it's absolutely a natural fit. Um but the guy's born for this film, and you know, and, and I love that that she brought it to fruition. The way mm-hmm. she, it, it, I love it. I can't wait to see it again. I've so, it once. if you had to pick from the options we gave, how would you have voted? And at this point, halfway, a little more than halfway through the year, do you have a clear pick for a performance that's not here that really stands out for you? Mm. It's a good list. I would, I would probably lean. Yeah, good. You know, Michael B. Jordan and Black Panther, frankly. I love it. I love it when somebody takes a hold of a good size supporting role and mainly because it's got everything else going for it. It's really well written. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the film, that's a superhero film that actually does not fall apart in the last half hour that actually gets more interesting. I think a lot of that's just because of the the fact that Jordan's an actor. He's really smart enough to play two or three impulses or notes at mm-hmm. once. And yeah, no, I'd, I'd probably go probably go Jordan. Maybe right. second. I don't know. Ethan Hawke. Yeah. You know, it is the career best for him. So that... Uh, and more, not enough people saw First Reform. They never True. really quite did it. Yep. There's something about the, I think what happened. That's a, that's a, that's a film where I think once people got the word out that he, that that character becomes who he becomes, suddenly you could just hear the box office box office mojo saying, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not going to be what it should be. Right. So, yeah. Let's move on to our new poll question. Two weeks from now, Josh and I will share our top five films of the year so far. So going from performances to the movies themselves, we do want to know what you think. And there are a lot of familiar titles here coming out of the last poll. Michael, these are in alphabetical order. Good. These are the options we came up with where we're considering movies that, for the most part, we've given very positive reviews to here on the show, but also thinking about the movies that we've heard from our listeners and from other critics seem to be among the most acclaimed of the year. We came up with, it looks like, eight options, including other, and they are. They are. In alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. Annihilation, Black Panther, First Reformed, Hereditary, Isle of Dogs, Paddington 2, A Quiet Place, The Rider, and Other. Other. So I'm not going to reveal my pick here. I'm not even sure my pick is there. It might be in the other category, even though I love many of those films. I've got some more time. I've got some more movies to see mm. before I share my top five here in two weeks on the show. I don't know if you do a list like this at all, Michael, but do you have any thoughts on the film that right now is the slam dunk movie you love the most from 2018? No, but you give me, you reminded me that I need to do this before we get too far into month seven of this year. Yeah. Because uh, people do tend to love this stuff, sure. and it, you know, and it, it, it's always interesting to see how that'll how names will either stay on or fall off, depending on how strong things get come festival time right. in September. You know, yeah, Annihilation uh, is that movie, of course, that came out so early in the year, and I loved it. But I do worry that if I don't make time to revisit it, and I very rarely get a chance to revisit movies over the course of a year, I have a feeling that. It's going to be low in that top ten, or even out of the top ten, just because it's not fresh enough in my mind. And I, you know, I'm, I struggle with that one a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, and I need to see that a second time for a lot of reasons. I, I just, I, I'm not sure if this, you know, I, f- I feel more secure with me being kind of moderately good on a quiet place. Mm-hmm. I think I'm clear on why I don't like it, but Annihilation, I'm not. 
because I I think that director's Garland is really Alex Garland is really good. I mean, mm-hmm. he's really a strong writer director, and I was very fond of Ex Machina. And I'm not sure there's something up with the rhythm of Annihilation. I never quite yeah. figured out. But it, yeah, I don't blame the film. I blame me. It's all me. This Good. is my, my fault. Okay. Good. <laughs> you can vote now at filmspotting.net if you leave a comment, and we hope you do. Please let us know where you're listening from. We might just read that comment on air. Let's get now to a movie that very well could have been among these options for best film of the year had it come out a month or two ago, Leave No Trace. Is your dad in the service? He was. Do you feel safe living with your dad? We didn't need to be rescued. Your dad needs to provide you shelter and a place to live. He did. It's not a crime to be unhoused, but it's illegal to live on public land. We have found an option. Are we going to be okay here? Still think our own thoughts. The sum of the trailer for Deborah Granick's latest Leave No Trace had opened in limited release, including here in Chicago just this past weekend. It's hard to believe that It's her first narrative feature since 2010's Winter's Bone, the movie that gave us Jennifer Lawrence. She did make a feature-length documentary in 2014 called Stray Dog. She's back now with Ben Foster and newcomer Thomason McKenzie, and they play a father and daughter living off the grid. And in some ways, that pretty much sums up the plot because it's a film that is very sparse on plot, but not sparse on character, Michael, you didn't get a chance to write a review of this movie. Would you care to share any no, thoughts yeah, on it here? No, yeah, I was frustrated. That's the best film I've seen, the best American film I've seen this year where I just, the schedule and some time off just conspired to prevent me from actually filing a review. <laughs> I just couldn't get to the, I just couldn't get to it. And it's, I, I think, I think, you know, what you said about, you know, it's hard to believe that Granick hasn't had a feature narrative features since Winters, but well, hard to believe, but also distressingly, yeah. uh, distressingly common problem for female directors. You look at how long Patty Jenkins had to wait before Wonder Woman came along. You know, I think, I think Granick's great strength, I think, as different as those two films are, Winter's Bone and Leave No Trace, is that she really believes in figuring out how the location of the story is going to tell the story. And you know, she's somebody who really did take it to a corner of the Ozarks you hadn't seen before in Winter's mm-hmm. Bone. And I think that's also true in a subtler way with Leave No Trace. It's it's set and shot just outside Portland, Oregon in, in the forest. And, you know, the character played by Ben Foster is a U.S. military veteran who's uh, apparently suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, and he's really unable to integrate into, you know, normal conventional society and his old life. But he and his uh, teenage daughter, played by Thomas and McKenzie, are just simply, you know, making their way day to day in the life they live out in the forest, you know, setting up camp and just learning how to, you know, survive uh, on very, very little. But this life comes to an end fairly early on. And that's that's what the film's about is how, how people like that have to, if they're forced to, uneasily integrate back into quote, real life. And it's just, I don't know, it's a film that, it's very quiet and very astute about finding the tenderness in the central relationship without it ever seeming false or corny. I just find Foster intuitively responds to playing probably the most sympathetic role of his career. He's a guy like Michael Shannon, who once he shows he can play one flamboyant sociopath, 
Hollywood gives him five more to play, and he t- and he takes three of the roles, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it's it's a temptation for a good actor uh, to to say screw the typecasting, I don't care, mm-hmm. I, I like these parts, they're they're juicy and fun, and I can find something in them. But then a role like this comes along, and he just just falls into it so easily and naturally, and and uh, you know very a uh, hell of a lot of it is done you know between you know the the, the forehead and the nose. It's all in the eyes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and this young actress, uh, Mackenzie, is every bit as good. Yeah, I don't know if this is her first film. No, role, it's but not. It's, it's, it's been not. all TV or a lot of TV. A lot of TV, but a lot point. of experience. She's, I mean, they yeah. both experienced actors. Uh, Granick, uh, I think, just again by instinct. Uh, lets the setting of the story sort of dictate uh, how big these performances are going to be, which is not two, you know, not two. I, I really, I really, I really went with it completely. Yeah. Uh, it's really for what it is. It's small. You yep. could even call it modest, but it's just about flawless. Yeah. And Foster really is the big surprise here. And I'm not even necessarily singling him out as the best thing about the movie. I think Granite's direction and the sense of location and everything else here, including Thomas and McKenzie and her performance, but. It was a surprise because Foster, he's an actor I've always enjoyed watching on screen. Yeah. He's someone who's never afraid to go for it. And he's never afraid to be big with a performance. And here he's never boring. He's not sleepwalking through this performance by any stretch, but he is so disconnected from the world around him. Not from his daughter, but from the larger world around him. And he's so subdued and beaten down and restrained that you feel for him and you feel for his struggle even as you do witness what he's doing to his daughter. And I think it's interesting that you said it's his most sympathetic performance. It probably is. And that probably also speaks to some of the other characters he's played right. on screen. But I don't feel as if he ever in his performance asks for our sympathy. He is not shy at all about playing those really rough edges of this character and trying to make us understand that he's really doing what's best for his daughter. He's really a... Yeah, he's a traumatized... Disturbed yeah, is maybe too tra- strong, but yeah, traumatized. Traumatized soldier who, you know, just simply simply cannot abide living in the in the world no. as we know it. And and yes, is it is it... Uh, is it a blinkered existence for his daughter? Well, this is right. sort of this is sort of the crafty thing about the first twenty minutes. It seems idyllic in some ways, kind right. of like they're really enjoying Eden, life yes. in Eden. And then and then you slowly realize, you know, through various turns of the, you know, the story, it's it's not. It's neither one. Neither one of the lives we see these people live, kind of the the wild one mm-hmm. or the the more domesticated routine one that they they find so strange and neither one of those is is quite comfortable for them sorry for making you worry about me if we had a phone i could have called you always been able to communicate without all that i think it might be easier on us if we try to adapt wearing their clothes we're in their house we're we're eating their food we're doing their work we have adapted. The only place we can't be seen is in this house. We can still think our own thoughts. Like you said. This isn't Captain Fantastic, the Viggo Mortensen film, Ugh. if you've seen it. Please, I don't. think we talked about it a little bit. I'm I leaving. like it. Hold on. I can't even, I won't even stay <laughs> if you've mentioned it. I love the sound effects. Walk, 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 walk. <laughs> I like the movie a little bit more than you, Michael. Not a lot more than you. Maybe it's that I have such a soft spot for Mortensen. But I'm just making the comparison. That's a dad 
we see on screen in that film who rejects materialism and is trying to really avoid society because he's got these sort of grandiose reasons for thinking he can raise his kids better. Yeah, and, and grandiose comic monologues that I didn't buy a word of. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Ben Foster's dad, by comparison, he really is doing this not at all out of principle, but it's just his psyche. No, he, he can't, just can't cannot, function yeah. within normal, quote-unquote, society anymore within that environment. And I think that that adds a, a layer to this film of dread, maybe, of profundity that as simple as the movie is at its core, it makes it something that really does linger with you, especially, of course, will not spoil it at all, but the final moment of this film, the final scene here is one that I think in many ways, when you look back on it, you realize is inevitable, and yet it's in its own way shocking at the same time. And it is one that really has stayed with me. The cinematography here, Michael McDonough, who not only did Winter's Bone, did the very good startup, also the gorgeously shot Terrence Davies film, Sunset Song. Oh, this movie, not, not quite as gilded yeah, <laughs> as, yeah. as that film yeah, or Rhapsodic. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way to put it. But this movie, too, it was funny thinking about it in relation to Sorry to Bother You, because it's so the complete opposite in so many ways. And that's not a commentary on either film, but that film is a movie that's trying to make some really large statements about society and the characters, as much as we love that central relationship, they're more pieces that help reveal that larger picture. And here, I think the characters really are the whole puzzle. Right. And we can read into it or not what it says about these people living on the fringes, these homeless people living in the park former soldiers suffering from PTSD, the treatment they aren't getting or should be getting, whatever. But that's it. It it asks us to read into that and draw our own conclusions, and it doesn't force anything down our throats. And it really sounds so slight to say that it's a coming-of-age story. I almost hate to say it about mm. this movie, but it's that in the deepest, most difficult way possible. It's a teenager realizing who she is, her identity, is all caught up in the schism between her and her father. There's a key line in the movie where she says, the same thing that's wrong with you isn't wrong with me. And really at the core of that, she's saying, I'm not you and I can't be you. And there are lots of epiphanies that we all have as we go through life about our parents and about who we are and how maybe we're different or not different from them. But there's something in this schism that's just weightier and the subtle ways in that performance, McKinsey's performance, the subtle ways we witness that epiphany, her little flickers of rebellion are really striking. Yeah. What do you think it is about, Adam, about, about the fact that Leave No Trace, I would, I would put in Lean on Pete. Yeah. And, and especially The Rider. What is it? There's, these three films sort of be, they seem to be talking to each other. In the, in the, what I agree. The, what they're saying, kind of the, the, those little slivers of you know, the country they're looking at and mm-hmm. the people who live in that sliver, right? But they're all, they're all very similar size and kind of tone. And, and I don't know if it's just that you, you, need, you need the right people and the right director to kind of, to kind of just make, make their statement, you know, very quietly, but very, very clearly. Yeah. I, I don't know. I really, I'm, all three of those have really stuck with me. It's a great point. I think you can very easily break down the connections between these wonderful films. Another one, though, I wonder if this is something you latched onto at all, Michael. The connection between the writer and this movie insofar as the way they merge with reality. The writer is much more blatant about it, even though I think someone said this, it might have even been Sam, our producer, who said, as much as it does show you 
characters essentially playing themselves Mm -hmm. using their own names and we see some real footage and stuff in there. It's a movie that we always are aware of as a movie. I think that's the real trick of the film, right? It doesn't feel like a movie that's trying to ape a documentary, if you will, a nonfiction film. But there are still those obvious departures from fiction in that film. They're less obvious here, but there are a bunch of touches where it seems very clearly that Granick's using non-professional actors. There are people who are using their name, their real name. Even Thomason McKenzie is called Tom. That's her character's name in the movie. But there are a bunch of little touches like that where you sense that she's not trying to do it, again, as pointedly as the writer is, but there are still those elements here. I mean, so many good directors from all, all across you know, the 20th century film history have, 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 have discovered and exploited the, the real, the right kind of exploitation, yeah. I would say. The way Kazan would use you know, non-actors as, as background in films like you know, Baby Doll and A Face in the Crowd. And, all, and, and it's just, it, 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 it brings, if the story's working, it's it's a way of keeping your marquee actors honest. <laughs> and I think maybe in a subtler way, Granick, who co-wrote the script as well as directing it, you know, by, by kind of keeping the names of the characters as variations on the actors, it's just it's just a psychological hoodwink. I think it brings – it, it sort of tricks an actor into, okay, I have to bring this one closer to myself. You know? Yeah. And that's, you know, a lot, that's what a lot of acting is, is how do I bring this role – to me, you know, it's not. It, it can't always be the objective as an actor or as a director, because then it just becomes more narcissistic if you don't watch it. But but in this case, it's it's what was needed. It's, yeah. a, it's a quiet. The, the the life these people are living is precarious and bizarre and a little dangerous. But it's also very still. Yeah, there's a lot of, of silence, and it's, it's you don't need a lot of external technique, or you're going to be you're, you're going to pump this movie into, up into something it shouldn't be. Leave No Trace is out in limited release. If you are one of the fortunate who have a chance to see it, we encourage you to do so, and then let us know your feedback. Feedback at filmspotting.net. When we come back, we'll share our top five worst movie jobs. Our producer Sam helped a lot with my top five list. I was very glad to see in all of his suggestions podcast producer <laughs> was not on the list we'll see what did make the list stay with us yeah my daddy was a bank robber bank robber taught me how to get money get money i don't want to hurt nobody yeah i just love to live this way my daddy was a bank robber bank robber taught me how to get money get money i ain't trying to hurt nobody yeah, I just love to live this way. Hey, I've been out here low riding, low riding, hanging out with nobody, nobody. Cause I got my own problems, own problems. I'm young and black with no college, no college. But both them, cause the streets is where I graduate. Mama gon' congratulate. Tell me that she loved me, but I gotta make it out this place. They can die here every day, or they get stuck working jobs. Caleb, get your own job and get your own space. We're also pleased to be brought to you this week by Film Spotting listeners, the lifeblood of the show. Whether it's a one-time donation or a monthly donation, we appreciate every single cent that we get. This week, Michael, we got a donation from Dolly Sanborn, Parts Unknown. Hmm. PayPal didn't tell me. I can't give a shout-out to Dolly's location. I can tell you that we got a Silver Club donation from Alex Hochberg. He's in Wappingers Falls, New York. Does that sound right? Wappingers? Wappingers? (laughs) I didn't Google this. I apologize, Alex. But he's got a good 
kind of question here in his note to us. He says, hey, guys, longtime listener, time to pay the dealer, favorite podcast, Wolf of Wall Street, better than American Hustle, and all other cliche but true donation message phrases. Thank you, Alex. (laughs) My sister, brother-in-law, and I recently had a great discussion slash debate on a long car ride inspired by Tony Collette's performance in Hereditary that we think could make a great future top five. And I do think we should do this top five. Best female performances since 2010. Hmm. Our agreed-upon working list became Juliette Binoche in Clouds of Sils Maria or Certified Copy, couldn't decide. Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea or Blue Valentine, also couldn't decide. Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty and Kate Blanchett in Blue Jasmine. We were really having trouble with our consensus fifth pick, having to choose between tour de forces like Adele Xarcoupolis in Blue is the Warmest Color, Marion Cotillard in Two Days, One Night, Tilda Swinton in We Need to Talk About Kevin, Laurie Metcalf in Lady Bird, or Vicky Creeps in Phantom Thread. Also also, my brother-in-law won't stop gabbing about Kristen Stewart in Clouds of Sils Maria, but I think it's mostly because both him and my sister are in love with her. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I could see the idea of ranking performances against one another as a potential film-spotting madness theme to one day. It gets addicting once you start to do it. P.S. Alex says, still holding a grudge, you left out the flashback car repair shop scene from Darjeeling Limited in your top five Wes Anderson scenes. <laughs> it's by far my favorite Wes scene and holds the whole film together. I've only seen Darjeeling Limited once. I'm afraid to say, I don't even remember that scene. That's a little, that's Sorry, it. Alex, I will have to bring it up online. But Michael, some good choices there. Very good. If you were going to do it, a few of those would absolutely be in strong consideration yeah. for me. I mean, the, one, the only obvious one I'd leave off would be, I think, Blanchett and Blue Jasmine. I, I, I found kind of where I was, yeah, too. Yeah, I didn't like that film. But um, boy... Yeah, is that Chastain's Binoche. best? Is that Chastain's best performance? Zero Dark See, I, don't I like know. that film a lot. I do too. I do too. I think I actually like her better in Sorkin's movie last year, Molly's Game. Yeah, she's great. She really is. She's great. I, I think Benoche is is really. Cotillard sort of, is always good. I mean, yeah, I'd say definitely. Michelle certain. Williams too has to be in the conversation. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. So, you've given us a great challenge, Alex, and we just might take you up on it. Thank you again for your donation. We close with this one: a gold level donation from Amy Valerio. She's in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. Sounds lovely, doesn't it, Michael? This time of year. Yes. Amy says, so excited to finally be making this donation. It's $60, $5 a month, plus a $50 donation for her husband Peter's oh. big birthday. Wow. Amy says, thanks for all you have done for our car rides and dinner preps. We're happy to be a part of it. It's a very generous donation. Happy birthday to Peter. Thanks for supporting the show, guys. We do have a few other donations that have come in, including one of the most generous in the history of the show. And I will save that mention for next week, Michael. Nice suspense. Yes. What's the problem, pal? You, Moss. You're such a hero. You're so rich. How come you're coming down here and waste your time with such a bunch of bums? You see this watch? You see this watch? Yeah. That watch costs more than your car. I made $970,000 last year. How much you make? You see, pal, that's who I am. And you're nothing. I love any top five list that gives us a chance to play that scene from that movie. Alec Baldwin just murdering Ed Harris. <laughs> Tough guy Ed Harris in 1992's Glen Gary, Glenn Ross. No offense to any real estate agents out there listening right now, maybe even heading out on a sit themselves. But real estate agent, at least as depicted by David Mamet in that film, qualifies as a worst movie job, which is this week's film spotting top five tying in with telemarketer 
in Ooh. Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. I love what uh, Mamet said about his characters in Glengarry. He said, those guys could sell you cancer. <laughs> and they would, they would too. They would. <laughs> Glengarry is in the film spotting pantheon. That means it's not eligible for this top five list. We'll see if I found a way to get another type of salesman into this film spotting top five. And there is a version of this list, Michael. We'll see if you ended up going this route. That could be very, very fun and probably even funny, playful, where we get the movie jobs that are truly movie jobs, meaning they're jobs that are unique. To film. Right. For example, some of the ideas Andy Mitchell, RPA, threw out, that Sam threw out as well, that are great. And I've seen some other lists like this online that took this approach. You get like Spinal Tap Drummer, (laughs) right? Or Death Star Gunner. Well, that's the one I was really, I was very tempted on. Is is people really, those those custodial types hanging over on the screen left. On the Death Star or whatever. Very close to the beam. For sure. And and they're going to die. Any, and they're going to die anyway. <laughs> right. You can't. You can't win. So those guys. you could go that route. I did not go that route. I I guess I'm just way too literal, and that seemed way too sprawling for me. Actually, Sam's best one I have to share with everyone. It was bodyguard to the guy who pisses off John Wick. <laughs> That's true. (laughs) Which, I mean, there you go. Sam just should have done this top five. I'm going to have very boring choices and conventional choices compared to that. But I did approach it thinking about real jobs and no soldiers on my list. Anyone going to war, that's its own category. Like Goldfinger's Army. You're not going to, you're not (laughs) going to, yeah. Not even that. And I did try to approach it. Maybe had one little cheat here, but I tried to approach it where these aren't characters doing one-off jobs. Mm. Love it if you did, but I was thinking about not going with, say, The Shining. Stuck in a career. Right. These yeah, are, of, these are people sorts. who are doing a job. This is a career. This is every day for them, and I can't imagine doing it every day, probably not even one day or a few days. So that's, that's how I approach it. I also thought about it in terms, Michael, of the job has to be central to the movie. Mm-hmm. Star Wars isn't about those people, right? No, no. And Spinal Tap certainly isn't about those drummers as good as that joke is. So doing the work, the physical and emotional toll it takes, that is something that did factor into my list. How about you? Well, I'm I'm next door to you. I I wasn't so concerned about the but central to the narrative. Okay. Because there were, yeah. in, in several cases, I'm talking about smaller, even bit parts that I just find, you know, kind of like striking and compelling. And just to think of, my God, what if that was... I mean, I've, yeah, you know, I mean, we're not snobby about work here. I mean, I mean, I've had janitor jobs and all kinds of things that, you know, mm-hmm. take, take a certain amount of, you know, drudgery and patience and just sort of whatever. But it's, uh, it's more about just about, yeah, if they're put in the right dramatic situation where you think, oh, can you imagine? You right. Know, this is, this is a lousy movie job, you know, hmm. and that's, that can be drama or comedy. So, yeah, yep. we'll, let's see what we got. Okay. You're number five. All right. Number five. I'm going to go with a movie I know you haven't seen. You told me. You haven't seen it. Okay, Todd nope. Browning's Freaks. Right. If you're going to be a circus freak. Uh, Which one? Already, well, already, Which one do you already you're in a realm of pathos there that, you know, it, it would be hard. And it's, it's kind of a humiliating, miserable, hopefully one of these years, antiquated, completely out of date thing. But in Freaks, uh, the, the main character of the alluring trapeze artist Cleopatra, played by Russian actress Olga Baklanova, who was advertised in her early films as the Russian tigress, Olga Baklanova. She plays Cleopatra, and the narrative of Freaks has it that this character marries the sideshow midget 
uh, not for love, but for his inheritance. So they plan on killing him and with the money, with her lover on the side. Okay, the freaks don't like this. Uh, and the film is largely about the vengeance they wreak on this character. And in the last shot, and it's a bookend premise here, in this uh, violently pre-code film that's really, really grisly, uh, uh, you see that uh, Cleopatra is now turned into uh, a woman who is uh, half woman uh, and half chicken. And she's stuck in a box. And that's what you see is this horrible cackling. <laughs> you know I'm never going to see this and, movie now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. It's rough going. And I just thought, tough job. Yeah. I mean, to do that <laughs> for several hours a day for the for a paying audience, <laughs> uh-huh. I just, I, th- I thought, hmm, watching that, I thought, tough job. <laughs> tough job, uh, day in and day out. You know, you, you don't really get the sense of how that plays out over time. No. You just have to imagine it. And I mm. thought, eh, that, that's good enough, not. good enough for my list. Chicken, chicken lady. <laughs> Absolutely. Way scarier than anything on my list. Certainly my number five. I'm going with a more recent film, Jason Reitman's movie Up in the Air, hmm. starring George Clooney, Anna Kendrick. George Clooney plays a corporate downsizer. His job is to go across the country firing mm-hmm. people, or I'm sure, as they put it, terminating people, assisting people in their termination. Right. And collecting great frequent flyer miles right. the whole way. Now, almost every job, not the chicken in a box, but almost every job is going to have a good day versus some bad days. There are going to be aspects of the job that you love to do while there are things about it you don't love to do. There's no good day if your job is just to fire people. There's no part of the job you could possibly love to do, except for the travel. That's not really the job, right? right That's right. ancillary to it. Some of the circumstances may change. Some cases might be easier than others, but every day, You are delivering awful news to people who respond with varying degrees of anger, despair, or both. Mr. Bingham, I'm here today to inform you that your position is no longer available. I'm fired. Yes, you're fired. Never say fired. You've been let go. Why? This is a mythical situation. How could I possibly know why? Why doesn't matter. You never know why. It's important not to focus on the why and rather to spend your energy thinking about your future. Well, I'm going to spend my energy on suing you unless you give me a good reason why you're firing me. Mr. Bingham, the reason's not important. So you're firing me without grounds. Now I really have a lawsuit. Don't take this personally, Mr. Bingham. Personally? This is the most personal situation that you are ever going to enter. So before you try to revolutionize my business, I'd like to know that you actually know my business. So that's a scene from the first encounter with Clooney and Anna Kendrick, the young upstart who wants to now fire people all over video conference. And he kind of puts her in her place and she struggles to fire him and have this personal exchange. And that moment when he says, this is the most personal situation you're ever going to enter. So before you try to revolutionize my business, I'd like to know you actually know it. You're not just delivering bad news. You are entering into this very vulnerable, intimate exchange with someone, everything they support and care about in life, their identity in a lot of ways is tied, of course, to how they pay their bills, how they make their money every day, what they do for a job. Michael, I don't want any part of that ever. And there is an element to his Ryan Bingham where he doesn't care about these people, but at least he does, as he put it, see some dignity and that he's doing it at least to their face. Unlike what she wants to do, he is a professional about it, but video conference, telephone, face-to-face, couldn't do it. Yeah. Don't want it. That's tough. 
Yeah, and you wonder what the technology and other things, other patterns in the workforce have done in the intervening almost decade now, right? Since that film came out, mm-hmm. two thousand nine, yeah, yeah, eight or nine. Yeah, yeah, a long time. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know how. I hope to, I hope to never find out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're number four. All right, in the movies, the head of a crime family, an underworld, like a, a major underworld figure in the scheme of the uh, of the story, mm-hmm. is usually a very kind of attractive, glamorous, darkly charismatic thing. Well, the there's something about a, re, a truly pathetic crime boss that that really sticks with me as I think okay. about it. Uncle Joe Grandy in Orson Welles' Touch of Evil is played by Akeem Tamirov. And this guy, it's, you know, he's head of the Grandy crime family that Charlton Heston, the most convincing Mexican narcotics cop ever, of course, <laughs> ever. Uh, is, is trying to bust, right? And, uh, and you know, Grandy's this drug lord uh, struggling with his toupee the whole film. Uh, you know, Janet Lee at one point calls him out as a ridiculous, old-fashioned, jug-eared, lopsided little Caesar. You know, that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, descriptors there. But that's if you add all that up, and and how Tamirov just sort of rolls around the, the sort of the edges of the picture, and then the the scene where he meets his demise at the at the literal hands of Hank Quinlan, played by Wells. You know, in this in the scuzziest motel bedroom you have yeah. ever seen. Uh, uh, to me, if, when, I, when I just think of like, you know, th- such a grim, horrible everyday life where you're just just upbraided by everybody and you can't even do your, your kind of petty two-bit crime boss job right and then you die at the hands of a really venal American cop. Uh, that's no life. No. And, and a hell of a death. Uh, which scared the hell out of me the first time I saw it. Really? Do you remember that How scene? old were you when you saw it? I do remember. Yeah, probably yeah. like 16. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's my favorite B movie. It's my favorite truly scuzzy B movie, A level B movie mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I, it, it sort of helped me realize what a genius Wells was and how blithely cavalier he was about not giving a shit about the plot. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, I think Tamirov's Tamirov's Uncle Joe Grandy, crime boss, par. What's the word? Not excellence, but <laughs> yeah. par mediocre. Right. You know? uh, and why am I even using French? He's he's uh, Mexican, but uh, or playing a Mexican anyway. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's my number four. Okay. Well, I'm going to follow that sort of cops and criminals motif here with my number four, and I'm going with a pair of movies. A little bit of a cheat, but you'll understand why I paired him in a second. Michael, Old West Sheriff. <laughs> Okay. In Rio Bravo and High Noon. Oh, yeah. I don't want to be an Old West Sheriff. Based on either of these films, or really any other Western, if you will, somehow Rio Bravo isn't in the Pantheon yet. I don't know why that is, so I'm allowed to choose it for and, this and list. And Glengarry is? I know. I know. Huh. I can't explain it other than Sam and I watched Glengarry Glen Ross 472 wow. times before we ever saw Rio Bravo once. Wow. It's, so well, it's worth seeing just to, just to hear how uh, I think is it Arkin and who is it Arkin and Harris who have that scene yeah. together where they say shoes and boots at the same second. <laughs> it's great. It is fantastic. I'm going to make Rio Bravo and High Noon a pair because Howard Hawks, who directed Rio Bravo, supposedly as the story goes, saw them as a pair. Rio Bravo being his response to High Noon. Yeah, I hated High Noon. Yeah, hated High Noon. His John T. Chance Sheriff John Wayne being the response, the sheriff, the professional he thought a sheriff should be, the man he thought a man should be compared to Gary Cooper's Will Kane and High Noon. Like up in the air, this is another scenario where I'd prefer a job, frankly, Michael, that just doesn't involve so much confrontation. (laughs) But this is one where the confrontation is so much more aggressive, more than just being emotionally wrecked 
you could be seriously hurt or you could be killed right. on your job. That is the threat hanging over both of our sheriffs. Today's job as a police officer is surely more complicated and difficult. There's a lot more to navigate, but I'm going to say there's more support and there's more structure as well versus being the law. You right. are in your town, the representative of the law. You may be lucky to have a couple flunky assistants like Dean Martin and Walter Brennan, Walter Brennan yeah. in Rio Bravo, or maybe you don't. Maybe you're kind of all alone like Will Kane. At least he ends up that way. You are the only one who can administer justice. Both sheriffs in these films are in impossible situations. They're the only ones standing between these really dangerous, vengeful outlaws. One seeks help doesn't get it, at least from the town, gets some help in the end. The other has a couple of those deputies, like I mentioned, but otherwise recognizes that it's his fight. It's his fight only. That's the job. If I die, I die. And Mm. he goes out to face them. This is a job, though, that tests you physically and mentally, but at least based on these films and a lot of other Westerns, morally, too, right? It's, It's about who you are, not just as a professional, but as a husband, as a friend, as a man, It's caught up in these decisions. And you know what? Life is tough enough, Michael. I don't need to be making these types of choices every day. Right. Well, the screenwriter is against you, you know, because you tend to have the word, the invisible word, hapless on your forehead. (laughs) Just like, just like help me on on, on, on poor Reagan and the exorcist. Uh (laughs) You're number three. My number three, uh, I hate to go back to the same damn movie twice, but I had to. Actually, I love to. Uh, 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 In Touch of Evil. Okay. I find it would be difficult to work as the, in general, it would be hard to work as the night man at a motel in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know, lonely. Mm. And especially if you're talking about the world, the setting of the movies where, you know, this is, you know, late 50s. And then in the case of the one movie, it beat out. I mean, this guy, the night man in Touch of Evil played by Dennis Weaver, who has these, you know, these sort of, is is kind of caught in this like tortured psychosexual relationship with his with the people checking into the motel who are all part of Uncle Joe Grandy's gang and they're gonna yeah. terrorize poor Janet Leigh and drug her and and of course the inferences are much worse but then they back out of that in terms of the script but uh, uh, Weaver turns this this tiny pathetic role into this sort of epic statement on on all the, it's like a twitch on legs and 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 there's one shot that's unexpectedly poetic where he's out in the dead of night and it's really windy and he's out by a this one sort of like leafless tree and it's honest to god it's like waiting for Godot just got a third major character and it's it's the nightman from a touch of evil what seems to be the trouble trouble the lights the lights seem to be out in all the cabins yeah yeah somebody's been monkeying in with them puses they think I'm gonna fix them. They 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 got another thing coming. It ain't my job to fix them, even if I know how. I'm, Could you I'm the night show man. me, please, to my wife's cabin? No, there there is nobody here. You must be mistaken, sir. My wife has been registered here since this morning. My name is Vargas. Would you look, please, in the register? Register? I mean, the fact that that, all that's creepier to me than Norman Bates uh, running the Bates Motel the way he did. 
I don't know. That's uh, I don't want to do it in real life, and I really don't want to do it the way those guys did it. But so that's it. That's a, a nightman at the motel. No, yeah, not for me. Dennis and, Weaver wins, and we get a fair number of nightmen in motels throughout cinema history. Too. Yes. So yeah, but yeah, I don't want that gig. My number three. Sam made a great point when I shared this pick with him. He said that I had to be careful because it's not so much a job you choose as the other ones on my list are as one people who do this job are born into. It's one people take out of necessity. And certainly there's a lot of dignity in people who do do this job every day for decades or for any amount of time. But the job I see people perform in movies, Michael, and there's been a fair number of these depictions in cinema history, even Lust for Life, the Vincent Minnelli movie that was part of our Minnelli Marathon, where I can't fathom the will and the resolve it takes to do it, is Coal Miner. Mm. And I'm going with Coal Miner from John Sayles' great film, Mate One. Oh, Mate One, This is a job where, forget one week or one day, I wouldn't last one second going down in those mines. And I'm going with the great John Sayles movie. I think it was on my mind, Michael, because a longtime listener, Josh Youngerman, wrote in to me about Sorry to Bother You and suggested some top five ideas. And he was right on the correct path here, suggesting movies about labor, labor organizing, you touched on this, or anti-capitalist films. And certainly, Sorry to Bother You belongs in the same company as Sales's Mate One, the movie from 1987 that stars Chris Cooper, his film debut, James Earl Jones, Mary McDonnell, David Strathairn also in it. And it's set back in the 1920s, a coal miner's strike in the small West Virginia town of Matewan. Chris Cooper plays a union organizer who comes in, obviously, to help kind of mobilize the men as they fight for anything, as they fight for any kind of proper treatment against the mining company. Now, they got you fighting white against colored, native against foreign, holler against holler. When you know there ain't but two sides of this world, them that work and them that don't. You work, they don't. That's all you got to know about the enemy. Cooper there as Joe Kenahan breaking down really the only distinction that matters as he sees it that they work and the people who work for the mining company, the people they're fighting against, do not. I looked this up and I found an article from 2010. So obviously this is eight years old, but ABC did a story about coal miners back in 2010, that mm-hmm. said 50 to 60 coal miners die every year. That was just eight years ago. We're still getting mm. 50 to 60 coal miners dying every year. A quote from the article, it's such a dangerous job that miners wear emergency breathing devices at all times in order to help give them enough time to escape a disaster. In addition to cave-ins and explosions, miners face dangers they cannot see, from carbon monoxide to methane gas. You've got black lung. Mm. You've just got the physical toll of the job. And oh yeah, have I mentioned the fact that you're inside a mine? <laughs> For people like me yeah, who are yeah. claustrophobic. crushingly claustrophobic, mm. it it unnerves me just thinking about it. Yeah. And I don't know how these people manage to do it. I will throw in a quick plug for another mining movie. I thought about, of course, I could go the documentary route, but I've talked about it a lot over the years here on the show. Barbara Koppel's great Harlan County oh, USA. Yeah, also, the true story of a mining strike. But she also made a great documentary in the 80s called American Dream that took place at the Hormel plant in Minnesota, I great, believe. I love that documentary. It's great. And it's wonderful to watch in tandem with Harlan County because that's a film that's only from the perspective of the miners, the people striking. And I don't remember, frankly, if we ever see the management side of this labor dispute in American Dream, but we do see people crossing the picket line, which Harlan County, that again, only shows it from the point of view of the people who are 
downtrodden, the people right. who are the victims here. And this movie actually shows us, we get in the car at one point with Koppel as she crosses the line right. with someone who, we see his perspective. We see how badly he needs the job well, that and whole, why he would do something That like whole project, this. American Dream, I remember her talking about this at some event at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis where she she said that, you know, that strike went on so long and it, it ended up really twisting a lot of families right in half because he had, you know, one... You know, one brother, you know, yeah. on the line, and one brother crossing it, and you know, but but the, you know, it, it actually, if you're a kind of a lefty pro labor sensibility, mm-hmm. it, the length and duration and the cost of that strike really made you think. You know, that what yes. is it always worth it? Yeah. and that that made that that made that film fascinating. Really, yeah. it did. Yeah, and I'll just add that Chris Cooper, an actor, I mentioned this was his debut. It wasn't the first time I saw him. Or saw him in a sales film because I saw him in Lone Star first. That was the first sales movie I saw where I knew I was watching a John Sales movie. I think prior to that, I'd probably seen Eight Men Out three or four times just as a baseball movie. Right. But when I was kind of thinking of cinema seriously, Lone Star was one of those movies for me that was kind of a transition mm. into being a cinephile. Love Chris Cooper in the lead role in that film. Went back and saw Mate One. So good here. Really wonderful film. As I said, I think a great tie-in to Sorry to Bother You, completely different sensibility, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but barking up the same tree. Absolutely, certainly. absolutely. No, it's a good, it's it's good. And it is, I mean, we're, you know, Cole is still in the news because it our, is. our current president is, you know, very, very intent on mm-hmm. bringing it back. Uh, health health uh, crises be damned. Right. <laughs> You're number two. Let me, worst uh, movie job. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to uh, keep, keep the seriousness of tone here uh, by um, citing um, the character Debbie Reynolds plays in an MGM musical called I Love Melvin. From 1953. No, I'm intrigued. Very few people have seen it, nor should they. But the the aspiring star played by Debbie Reynolds, her name is Judy Leroy, uh, is a Corrine in a Broadway show. And uh, the gimmick of the movie for this character is that she has to play a human football. And she's kicked around during a production number, uh, sort of by aerial means wires and you know acrobatics and you know it uh it's the most humiliating performance job anybody on earth could ever have and uh it's it's eerily objectifying uh it's not kind of footballs or humans and uh, uh somehow that um that film's always given me a bit of a nightmare yeah it's just a and, and this is how donald o'connor falls in love with this character you know that's nice <laughs> Who's supposed to intercept me? You say, haven't we met someplace before? Not unless you play left tackle. Come on, come on, get out there. Time out. Okay, coach, send me in. So that's the worst, you know, of all of all the movies that really glamorize, you know, what it, you know, the, the striving young star. Yeah. And 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 the charm and allure of Broadway to to watch Debbie Reynolds get kicked around on the gridiron. During a production number in I Love Melvin, that <laughs> that to me would not be a good a no. good job. I don't care what kind of dancer you are. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. I can relate though. I think human football is how I feel after your appearances here on <laughs> usually, okay, good, Michael. Good. So, <laughs> well, I didn't work in a documentary, though I worked in some talk about a great documentary in my number three pick there, Harlan County, USA. I did choose a documentary for my number two worst movie job, and it's Bible Salesman. Oh, from the wonderful Maisel's documentary co-directed with Charlotte Zwerin from 1969, their direct cinema masterpiece that is called simply Salesman. Never this, seen it. No, you haven't seen no, it? No, I haven't. I mean, 
top ten all-time documentaries. I, so it's I hear, and good. I love Maisel's, but uh, have not seen that. Is that oh, crazy? It's wonderful. And it is a groundbreaking film in that it was their first feature, I believe. And the previous documentaries they had done, like a lot of direct cinema or documentaries, period, up to that point, they were all about big events. They were chronicling an event or looking back on something and telling the story. And here they just decided, well, what if we just followed everyday people doing their job? Could that be compelling enough? Could that sustain a feature length film? And they follow four salesmen as they travel all around New England and ultimately Southeast Florida. And their job is to go into these low income neighborhoods typically and sell pretty expensive Bibles. There is one point where they come to Chicago for a big sales meeting, but a movie that if you do love Glengarry Glen Ross, where you want to kind of see the basis for a lot of that torture that those men go through in that film and inflict upon themselves, (laughs) it's all rooted in a lot of what happens in this film from the Maisels. I personally think, and I know there are a lot of people out there who can relate that any type of sales job is hard, but it's one that can be done if you actually believe in what you're selling. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now who that's what they do every day. They're in sales. But if you love the product that you're selling, if you actually do believe in it, well, then it isn't really work like this. It sells itself. It sells itself, as they say, Michael, like a good salesman. (laughs) But you see in this movie at that sales convention, people from the company trying to kind of instill in them this motivation, the virtue and the glory. They're doing this great work, this profound work, the Lord's work right. of of sharing these Bibles. And people really do need it. Of course, they're also trying to entice them with stories of all the money they could be earning if they just worked as hard as some of the other guys in the room. There's a character named Paul Brennan, who is kind of the lead of the four. They end up following him, and it's because he's the worst salesman of the four, and he's really a tragic figure. He's kind of the Shelley Levine character from Mm. Glengarry. Nice guy. He just can't close. You can see how complete it is. The Bible runs as little as $49.95, and we have three plans on it. Cash, COD, and also they have a little Catholic on a plan. Which plan would be the best for you, the A, B, or C? I'm really not interested in wanting yeah. to speak at all with my husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to give him a surprise. Does he have a birthday coming up? Your lovely gift. That's yeah. true. We place a tremendous... The Bible is still the best seller in the world, so... That's a clip from the beginning of the film, and if many of you found that awkward to listen to, <laughs> imagine watching it, then imagine doing it. actually doing Ooh, it. And yeah. that awkwardness, that point where he's so determined to close on this woman who's holding her little boy and she keeps resisting and pointing out that we just don't have the money. Mm. We're just not really looking to buy that right now. That awkwardness is the awkwardness that destroys me in everyday life. I try to avoid those types of encounters with people. And to do that every day, to be caught in those moments where you're pushing, 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 and you're getting that rejection it's not for me. I wish we could get uh, my wife Heidi Stevens on to, to, to give her side of the story when we had a uh, storm window salesman mm-hmm. come to the house to, to with samples to talk about you know why we should go with that that product and, right and that was that was a guy who wouldn't leave 
Really? It was like the guest who wouldn't leave, but it was – and that was – and I sort of entered a fugue state. I couldn't say the obvious words of like, it's dark now or the kids need to go to bed yeah. or I'm hungry. It's time for a meal or, you know, hour after hour. And oh I just – I was I was mesmerized and and in a, in a stupor and the guy would not – uh, he really, he really wanted to leave with the check, and it was yeah. like, he's like, no, I can't. But it's, it's this is this is such nineteenth century technique. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that job hasn't whatever they're holding up. Fuller brushes in the middle of the twentieth century, you know, buggy whips in the nineteenth. It's all it's the same. It's it's pathetically uh, part of our uh, collective history, and I, I find those those are hours I'll never get back. But I, I have nothing but. Um, you know, but empathy for the guy, uh, especially because he was so bad at his job. <laughs> You're number one, Michael. I, actually, it's him. It I, is. I, I, I just <laughs> got to make a. Mo- I just have to make a movie about him. It sounds like I should just it's very him. cinematic. <laughs> well, my number one is actually taken care of by a listener from Ferndale, Michigan, Jeff Milo. Let's hear the what, great Jeff Milo. Let's hear what Jeff has to say. Hey, film spotting. It's Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan, and I'm calling about jobs. Uh, worst movie jobs. I feel like mine's a cheat because it's so exaggerated and, and, and outrageous in the movie, but um, uh, Jonathan Price is Sam Lowry in Brazil. Um, I can't think of uh, any other film that uh, better captures um, how dehumanized the lower drones, the, the desk drones of a faceless corporate entity can feel when, when they're in their, their, their box-like cubicles. Um, the reason I'm picking this as the worst job uh, is for obvious reasons. I think, I think any job is crappy if it feels like it's sucking your soul. And that's, spoiler alert, almost sort of what happens at, uh, uh, at the end of Brazil. But more than that, uh, Gilliam, as the director, dresses every scene at, at central services with a wash of numbing gray. There's gray everywhere, especially in the, in the scene where uh, Lowry fights for his side of a, a table, which is itself cut between a wall that he's sharing with some other sad sap. And you can just see how stressed and tense these characters are. So yeah, not a healthy work environment, but uh, a great dystopic, uh, drawl, dark, beautiful film. Anyway, great show, guys. Jeff, you took my number one. It's <laughs> Sam Lowry in Terry Gilliam's Brazil, and I'm so glad that Jeff uh, singled out that scene, which is truly one of the best minutes that Gilliam's ever put on film where Lowry's getting a seat at this sort of unspecified government job in this sort of Orwellian, you know, miserable government, you know, mm-hmm. facility. Uh, it's all this kind of ashen gray tone thing. And he, he, he gets this horrible desk. Uh, in this tiny cramped office um, and uh, it turns out to be connected to the desk at the other side of the wall and it's this wonderful struggle about who's going to get more of the desk and you don't know who he's struggling with until a little bit a little bit later in the scene but that it's just that's just one of many indignities that Lowry has to endure in Brazil and this is Jonathan Price playing him of course but what makes it even sadder I think is that Lowry is really trying to just simply right a wrong there's been an innocent citizen accused of terrorism and Lowry's trying to fix the problem and get the paperwork straightened out and then that, that's what kicks this whole bizarre Byzantine labyrinthian sort of crazy plot into motion and it's uh I've always found the film you know funny 
and then every laugh practically kind of catches in your throat. It's like ashes in the mouth because that's that's the intention. It's it's Gilliam's sensibility. I think the little guy that goes up against the system rarely wins ever uh, in a Gilliam film. Um, and of course, he's he's working off pretty well known source material here, and that he's riffing on Orwell's nineteen eighty four, among other things, uh, Huxley's Brave New World, and and it's all it's all kind of rolling around in here, but. Uh, Lowry's plight and something just about that that kind of office mm, anonymous office drone is is a is an image that the movies keep coming back to you yeah. go to King uh, Vidor's The Crowd in 1928 mm-hmm. uh, still one of my favorite shots in all of cinema the overhead swoop down the crane shot down across an unbelievable diagonal sea of of urban desks right and it's the twenties were very were very uh, attuned to how um, dehumanizing some of that kind of uh, architecture and design was on the human soul, and yeah. that's that's a lot of what Gilliam's playing with here. And, uh, yeah, it's Sam Lowry. If you had to pick one, that's 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 the job that would be toughest. And of course, he loses in a really spectacular way, uh, even though he he does try to fight the good fight en route. Yeah. Anonymous office drone, as you said, is one of those images. I'm, I'm one of them, man. To... I'm one of them. You know? <laughs> and it's funny because this movie did not make my top five or honorable mentions because I've never seen the entire movie. But I can tell you the single first image that came into my head when we started kicking around this top five was Joe versus the volcano. Mm. John Patrick Shanley, that depiction of Tom Hanks walking into his office. Right. And that that greenish blue tint and the the light that just keeps flickering over his head. There's like those four <laughs> desks there or whatever. Like I've never gotten the terror of that image <laughs> out of my head. And I've never even seen the entire movie, but I remember that so vividly. Right. So, right. Okay. My number one Let's hear worst it. movie job. I left out The Shining. I said it wasn't really eligible because that's not his job. That's just a job yeah, he took. A vacation from his job. I'm blurring the line maybe here a little bit, though we never really know what this guy's real career is. But he has signed up for something here and bitten off way more than he can chew. And that is the movie Moon. Sam Rockwell playing a caretaker. Not unlike right. the caretaker Jack Nicholson yes. plays in The Shining. His job is to spend three years on the far side of the moon and basically just keep the lights running, send some samples back home to Earth. He's doing a job for a company, Lunar Industries, very appropriately named (laughs) Lunar Industries. This is the Duncan Jones film that was our first ever Golden Brick winner, Hmm. our favorite overlooked film of that year. And I know a lot of film spotting listeners have seen it. It's not so overlooked anymore. But Sam Rockwell, so good in this performance. His only tie back to his family, back to civilization, is the videotapes he watches these transmissions of his wife who when he left she was pregnant so he's in a place where he can't wait to get back to earth for this three years to end and be reunited with his family this is another movie that i think ties in really well with sorry to bother you because without giving away too much it's a movie that's very much about corporate malfeasance it's about using workers seeing workers as pieces that the corporation can manipulate however they want if it means making money. So what would be bad about this job? Well, there's the repetitive nature of it. There's the lack of stimuli intellectually. He's got the Kevin Spacey voiced Gertie, the machine that he talks to. But otherwise, those transmissions are it. He really doesn't get any personal contact. And Michael, I think the crushing 
loneliness of that. The lack of any companionship or intimacy for that long is something that none of us would want to sign up for. That, that's a great pick. And I think that's that's kind of what's running through uh, a lot of these picks of both of ours. It's just that if, if you're taking if – if the right writers and directors are taking – a job like that, and whether it's a real world job or, yeah. or completely, you know, like a, a more fantastic leap into yes. science fiction or whatever, uh, um, it's uh, you take any job can be lonely, and and it takes it takes the right artist to find exactly why that loneliness is uh, both greater than the average and also strangely relatable. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Those are our top five worst movie jobs. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. First, Michael, I believe you have a few runners up. I, I mean, I think the, the seamstress uh, played and sung and sniffled by Anne Hathaway and Les Mis. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> if you had to have a seamstress, that would be, although although the dental plan clearly was based on her teeth is exceptional in that factory. Ouch. So I think that, you know, that's one. Farming. Okay, can we talk about the difficulties of farming yeah. and the harshness and oh, yeah. dependent on the weather and awful, you know, challenges uh, can persist to this day for, of course, thousands, millions across the world. I think the farmer that had the roughest go in movies is Farmer Dan, who uh, is the is the eyeless one with the sockets pecked out by birds in the birds, where Jessica Tandy says, I'm going to go talk to my neighbor, Farmer Dan, see uh-huh. how he's doing. Not well. That's as much as you know about Dan, but that, uh, farming is tough enough. <laughs> it and is. Then, and then that happens. <laughs> right. Okay, so that to me, that's tough. Um, and then really, the, the honorable mention would have to go to the Turin horse in the Turin horse. <laughs> I mean, that job, I mean, he's whipped mercilessly. Yes, mercilessly. And it's 30 long takes in 146 minutes, and it's, you know, it's the plot is largely, there's not much plot, but <laughs> no. it's about a father-daughter, potato farmers, farmers again. Yep. Horse, very stubborn, eventually won't eat or drink. It's it's all in this eerie post-apocalyptic, <laughs> you know, the world itself won't cooperate, let yeah. alone the horse. That's the, That horse, that job would be tough. It's the only animal that has a tougher job on film than the donkey in the Brisson film. Alhazard, Balthazar. I mean, that's, you know, that the Turin horse exists to make the donkey in the Brisson film look like he's a poodle and legally blonde. <laughs> Living the life of Riley. I can't top that. I've only got one I'm going to mention. There are so many to choose from, but here's one I'm going to throw out, even though I think the movie is okay, really. And it's the 2008 film Sunshine Cleaning. Oh, that is a tough job. Emily Blunt and Amy Adams, who decide that the way they're going to sort of jumpstart their lives and get things going in the right direction is go into business with each other and they are going to start a cleaning business. But no, they're not just normal maids. They're the maids who go in after any type of brutal crime or a death scene in general. Clean up, And they clean up. I don't know what the term is for it. I could probably Google it, but they are post-mortem cleaners. And as someone who is a little bit shy when it comes to bodily fluids, frankly, and cleaning up other people's. I, I don't need that, Michael. I don't need that it's job. Good, it's a good thing you're not a father. Adam. I know. Seriously. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, that's why you marry a nurse. 
You marry a nurse who... I hope she's getting 50% out of this marriage. Seriously, (laughs) at least. (laughs) Again, those are our picks for worst movie jobs. We'd love to hear your feedback. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And that's our show at filmspotting.net. You can find over 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives, many appearances by Michael Phillips in those archives. Also at our site, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. It's right there on the main page. You don't have to scroll very far down. We want to know what is the best film of 2018 so far. If you haven't already, please check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. You can find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And one more shout out to the great Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore closing up shop on several years of film spotting SVU. Sad to see them go, but they really went out with a bang with their finale episode. You can find that at filmspottingsvu.com or wherever you listen to your shows. In wide release, opening this weekend, Michael, Barn Burners here. Good ones. Hotel Transylvania 3 Ooh. and Skyscraper. Yeah. I hear Skyscraper's fun. I've heard that too. I mean, Justin Chang in the LA Times wrote very entertainingly on, you know, my, I, there's something about Dwayne Johnson and, yeah. and stupid movie that well, often, leads to, as hell. often leads to a good time. Yeah. yeah. Don't have anything here that's opening in limited release, though. Bo Burnham's eighth grade out in limited release is expanding to a few more screens, Chicago included. We will play my conversation from a couple months back. He was here for the Chicago Critics Film Festival and a screening of that movie, Eighth Grade. It closed out the fest. Great chat with him. Excited to share it with you. And then we've got a top five. It's either going to be teen girl protagonists or top five too real teen moments Too real. on screen. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Our thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from, appropriately, to our discussion of Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, Bay Area rapper Caleborate from his album Real Person. More information at soundcloud.com slash Caleborate. And if you have no idea how to spell that, I don't blame you. You can go to our website, filmspotting.net, click on the notes for this show, and you'll find a direct link there. Michael, as always, a real treat to have you on the show. Good to be back. Thanks, Adam. I hope that we made it worth your while. I hope that I didn't embarrass myself too much with terrible movie opinions. It wasn't just a crummy job, Adam. It was an adventure. Thank you very much, Michael. Where can people find more of your work? Well, they have to find more of it at chicagotribune.com slash movies. I'm on Twitter at Phillips Tribune and uh, live up there on the northwest side. So there you, you go. You can just sw- show up. Swing by. <laughs> have a little conversation about movies. Thank you again, Michael. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.